Hello, welcome to the People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. My name is David Kim. And I'm Christina DM Fam. We're stoked y'all are here for episode five. And thanks for tuning in. It's Saturday, April 17th, and you can join the conversation every Saturday morning from 10 to 11. Today, we'll talk about news happening right here in our city, including an unprecedented shakeup in our city government's political structure. We're also hosting Gina Harris, a registered nurse, and Francis Tran, a doctor in microbiology. Both will join the show to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. We're here to share what's going on in your neighborhood, talk about issues that impact you, and highlight the goodness within our communities. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on y'all's voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And ultimately, we're here to empower y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. So to kick things off, Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man, was shot and killed in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, by a Brooklyn Center police officer on Sunday, April 11th, 10 miles away from where former police officer Jarek Chauvin stands trial for the murder of George Floyd. The cops initially pulled Wright over because of an expired vehicle registration. That's when Officer Kim Potter, a 26-year veteran of the Minneapolis police force, drew her gun and shot Dante. Potter claims she meant to draw her taser instead of her pistol. Attorneys for the family of Dante Wright held a press conference on Tuesday. One of the most powerful moments of that press conference was when family members of George Floyd came out from Derek Chauvin's murder trial to show solidarity and support for the Wright family. Here's a piece of what George Floyd's brother, Philonis Floyd, had to say. To to the Wright family, just letting you all know, from the Floyd family, Y'all have our condolences. We will stand in support with you all. It's a shame. The world is traumatized watching another African-American man being slayed. Every day I wake up, I never thought that this world can be in so much disorder like it is now. Police officers are killing us. And we are being murdered at a rate that I never thought I could imagine. This reminds me of Oscar Grant at the train at the Fruitvale in Oakland, California, where he was told to lay on his chest with his hands behind his back in the prone position as the officer accidentally mistaken to shoot him with a gun instead of tasing him. There was no need to even tase him. Yeah. Dante Wright, just like his last name, Wright, he should still be here. Yeah. It's a time for change, and that time is now. Minneapolis, you all can't sweep this under the rug anymore. Yeah. We're here, and we will fight for justice for this family, just like we're fighting for our brother. Yeah. To, to the protesters all around this nation, stand up. Stand up. We need you all to come out because times like this, people need hugs. People need to be given love. This mom is grieving. What's that? This, this mom is grieving too. She lost her dude. This was the baby mother. She shouldn't have to go through what we're going through. Nobody should. This is a family that needs us 
to stand with them in solidarity now. We need you all to step up and be with us. And please pray for this family because I'm praying for them because I woke up in the morning with this on my mind. I don't want to see another victim of death. They claim it's homicide. They need to go back and look at what they're talking about because homicide now, they're telling me my brother was the same thing, but I want to see the people get the maximum amount of time just like I would have got the maximum amount of time. For the first time in L.A. County history, the redistricting process will be controlled by an independent citizen commission. That means you. Yes, you could be involved in this very important process that affects essential services and resources in the community for the next 10 years. Normally, we think about redistricting at the level of state or federal government, but the city also has to redraw what's called supervisorial districts at the local level, which determines the Board of Supervisors. This is crucial at the local level to ensure that the Board of Supervisors reflects L.A. County's diversity. This legislative body must be responsive to the needs of residents since they control public health and public medical centers, tax assessment, public social services, sheriff, and many other public services. And now, this is the first time we have that chance for a citizen-led redistricting committee. You can attend meetings, share thoughts at public forums, and let others know as well. Get involved by visiting redistricting.lacounty.gov to learn more about future meetings. That's redistricting.lacounty.gov. On a similar note related to jobs, this past week, Sunrise Movement and local chapters, including Sunrise Movement LA, took to the streets to demand their U.S. representatives and senators sign onto the Good Jobs for All pledge. The pledge reads, Quote, I commit to doing everything in my power to pass legislation that guarantees good jobs for all, invests $10 trillion over the next decade to create millions of union jobs addressing the crises of climate change, economic inequality, and systemic racism, and puts money into the hands of people and communities, not the wealthy few. End quote. David, I know you attended the local Sunrise Movement LA Action last week, right? Yes, I did. I was able to attend Sunrise Movement LA's action in front of Congresswoman Maxine Waters' district office. And although she wasn't there, the security guard that was on the property kept on chasing us away, but that didn't stop us. We just moved our action to the street right in front of her office and continued protesting, calling on her to sign the pledge as well. And for those of you who might know, Senator Markey and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez led the push for a Green New Deal in Congress. And this Good Jobs for All pledge is one next step in that fight for a Green New Deal. As such, our local Sunrise Movement LA and other partners across the country are encouraging constituents to send letters calling on their federal elected officials to endorse the Good Jobs for All pledge. The LA City Council is reaching a final resolution on a plan to provide new housing for thousands of homeless people. The city would allocate money to provide beds with the goal of sheltering 60% of the homeless people in each district. On the other hand, though, this would clear the way for the city to use anti-camping laws to clear out anyone remaining on the streets. This controversial policy comes on the heels of a federal lawsuit back in May that ruled that homeless residents living near freeways were at a health risk from COVID, exposure to carcinogens, and the chance of getting hit by cars. It sounds like the city spending money to shelter more unhoused people is a good policy, but we stand firmly against the criminalization of homelessness. 
And as expected, this proposal faces criticisms. Well, for one thing, the process has been anything but transparent. Mayor Garcetti and City Attorney Mike Fuhrer have not provided comment. And last month, the City Council held a four-hour closed-door session on this deal. Councilman Curran Price of District 9 said that he supports a new shelter, but doesn't support the policy's plan to shift the homeless population of Skid Row to other districts. In addition to criminalizing homelessness and decompressing Skid Row, using the city's own language, LAPD would then gain the authority to arrest unhoused people who don't stay in the new shelters. California and Los Angeles have opened COVID-19 vaccine appointments to people aged 16 and older. LA City-run sites are open from Tuesday through Saturday, and individuals can sign up at coronavirus.lacity.org forward slash VAX appointment. That's V-A-X appointment. Again, it's coronavirus.lacity.org forward slash VAX appointment. Individuals seeking shots at these sites must provide valid identification and be a resident of Los Angeles County. Otherwise, those who aren't residents can visit myturn.ca.gov to schedule a vaccine appointment. We'll speak more to the background of the COVID-19 vaccine with our guests today. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Today, we're spending time with Gina Harris and Francis Tran to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine, including vaccine development and distribution, their direct experiences in healthcare during this pandemic, why there is hesitation from community members to get a vaccine, and more. Gina is a registered nurse and activist. As an RN, she spends time in multiple clinical settings, including medical and surgery, cardiac rehab, and acute dialysis and transplant. She currently works on the administrative side of nursing, serving as regional manager of inpatient care management, which facilitates the coordination of patient services and healthcare. As an activist, she represents the 54th Assembly District as a member of the Los Angeles County and State Democratic Central Committee. She's also been a DNC delegate for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, and is a member of the Healthcare for All Los Angeles leadership team. And on Saturdays, you can find her volunteering with Urban Partners Los Angeles Food Bank. Frances Tran is a scientist with a PhD in molecular biology. She specializes in microbiology, molecular genetics, cell biology, and chemistry. She's also an expert in the development and execution of genetic engineering, synthetic biology, drug development, and biochemistry-based research methods. In her spare moments, Frances spends time in community building and empowerment, and she also practices capoeira, enjoys trail running, cycling, and swimming. Gina and Francis, thank you so much for joining us on The People, David and Fam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have both of you here and each of you play different roles uh, during this pandemic. Let's first start with the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Where were you? What were you doing? How were you involved? Uh, We can start with Gina. Um, At the very beginning of the pandemic, it was actually the 2020 primary and I was running for the LACDP position I'm in now. And so I was out kind of campaigning, like right when we were kind of hearing what was going on in China, 
you know, we were not affected here. So I was out and about up until we came back and went into full lockdown. So I won my election on March 3rd. I actually took a quick trip. I went to Puerto Rico, got on a plane without a mask, if you can imagine it. And then when I came back, like a week later, I had to move my entire team to work from home. We were locked down and then toilet paper disappeared. Crazy. With healthcare, how did that affect your daily work schedule? So, you know, what we were hearing in the hospitals, you know, because like working um, in the behind the scenes, I still collaborate with doctors, nurses, everything every single day. And so we were hearing the patients were starting to come in and that they were, you know, not knowing what the hell to do, excuse me, not what knowing what to do. And, and it was just, you know, PPE was already starting to run short. So, you know, it was just a lot of kind of unknowns. So there was a lot of kind of like turning to public health, looking for the guidelines and things like that on what to do, how to get patients home safely. You know, patients didn't want to, even their families, they didn't want them coming home if they were diagnosed with COVID. So they, they would not want them to come to the house because they're like, well, you know, I have children in the home. They can't come home. If they were already in a nursing home, the nursing homes didn't want to accept them back because they had COVID. And, you know, it was just like a kind of like nobody knew what to do. So it was like trying to get in touch with public health and force these guidelines that were rolling out, like almost to me, like on a daily basis and, and being on all these calls, trying to figure out what can we do? We got to We have to get patients out of the hospital, but at the same time, you have to care for them. Is it safe to discharge them? Is it not safe to discharge them? It was was just a lot of unknowns that I'm not used to. Yeah, and um, at that time, the vaccine didn't exist. Right, the vaccine, I mean, that was a dream. Like, you know, I think it was Fauci, they weren't even talking vaccine or even a a timeline for probably months after that. Because I'm thinking March, 2020, when things really started shutting down, I don't think we started hearing vaccine or the talks of it for a couple months after. And then even then they were like, it's not going to be until next year or the end of, you know, 2020 before we could think of it. So it was kind of like, you know, that wasn't a, a thought. Like we weren't thinking vaccine. We were thinking like, how do we prepare? What to look for? You know, like uh, keeping patients safe and, and reassuring the community. Most importantly, it was how, what do you do when you have COVID? Trying to get people to convince people that this is real and to wear a darn mask. Um, so many things going on at once, so much panic. And once again, like I said, what happened to the toilet paper? Now on the science and research end of it all, what was it like for you, Francis, in the beginning and, and your work there? You asked, you know, what I was doing when the pandemic hit. And I was unemployed when the pandemic hit, actually. So I um, was coming out of academia and on the job market looking to move into the general space of the private sector when the pandemic hit, kind of really directing my career more towards um, sustainability and solutions and like power production and and spending like this time while looking for jobs, kind of reinvesting in personal time and like my life and in the community, you know, similar time working with uh, the LA Tenants Union and the community garden that we had built and and, and with friends and kind of the life that all went away (laughs) during the pandemic. And it literally turned on a dime. I mean, I think, you know, in the science field, people were talking about it, it was moving, but to be honest, it was maybe only weeks ahead of of the general population. You know, the the trickling of this is a thing, this might be a serious virus, this might be okay. It, in the more concentrated community, it played out in the same way that it played out in, you know, every, everyday lives. It was unsure of the severity, how much it would explode and where it reached. A lot of this is unknown. This is, you know, just science. You don't know everything until we know it. We just hope we know it a little bit sooner every time. So 
um, when the pandemic hit and everything started to kind of realize that things were being shut down and things had to be moved, um, there's just a massive movement in the community, in the scientist community to mobilize, to kind of connect and build networks, which would have never happened 10 years ago because of the tools that we had. And during the early days, a few old collaborators reached out. So I had done research in um, my PhD studying uh, mRNA, just basic mRNA stability, how it gets regulated in the cell, how it just naturally works in, in general cells. And an old collaborator at the NIH had been working on advances in mRNA in different ways. And so he had reached out and asked if I was available to help collaborate on some just early R&D to play with some things that might be useful. And um, so I agreed, I had nothing to do and it seemed really exciting to kind of jump back in and to play around with some tools that we had thought about in the past and kind of see where it led us. So that's sort of in the early days is where I started. Would it be accurate to say that as the public was learning about new information, you and in the science field were also um, at the same time learning that? And, and also, when did you start helping out in that mRNA research? It's fair to say that we were maybe days or or weeks, like barely a few weeks ahead of, of the general population. And then that expanded a little more as, as the time went on. You know, what you saw play out in the general population was play on the, the science community. You know, debates about how serious this was, how likely it would be a a national pandemic, a global pandemic, you know, how quickly it would spread. It, these were internal debates being had by community and colleagues uh, constantly. So it's interesting to look back at, at the things that I thought and the things that others thought, you know, and, and um, places where I for sure was wrong. We definitely want to get to what y'all have learned throughout this process, but we're going to table that for the very end. Um, you've also mentioned mRNA. Can you Describe what is mRNA and how do you break it down into basics for a non-sciencey person to understand? Yeah, so mRNA, I would start with actually what we call like the central dogma. So um, in any organism um, and particularly in humans alike, everything that does anything um, is a protein. So anything that uh, does processes and um allows you to do anything is a protein in your body. And that gives you structure, that gives you the capacity to break down sugars that you eat, it makes energy. So without proteins, you really can't do anything. But how do you get to the end product of a protein? And so the beginning product is DNA. And so a lot of us have learned a lot about DNA over the years, partly because of the access to sequencing and these tools that everyone has utilized in getting sequences for themselves and understanding what genes are related to, say, eye color versus maybe athletic ability, maybe your height and all these things. So every organism starts with DNA, which is basically like the, the, the words or the letters that write your book. And um, in order to get from the letters or the words to the proteins, they actually have to be read. And so everything that is inscribed in your DNA is actually transcribed or read by a protein that makes mRNA. And the mRNA is the pieces of the sequence, say the sentences you're looking for to communicate what you're trying to do. So if you want to tell a person to um, close the window, then you actually have to just write that part of the DNA or that part of the book. And that message, maybe called an mRNA, 
will then lead to an action, which is the protein. So the mRNA is just basically the intersection between your genetic material that's lived in you forever in your DNA to the actual final product, the protein. And actually, because it's the intermediate, it actually gets degraded quite quickly. So it's, it's very unstable and um, is degraded quite fast. And that's actually a big problem for working with RNA in general. And, and when was this again that you had joined, Francis, in that research? In, in March. And I mean, I've been working with RNA and mRNA particularly um, through my graduate work because I was just generally interested um, in how regulation of mRNA happens. How do you get from reading DNA to making mRNA? And how do you quantify that? How do you measure it? How long does it stick around? What things kind of interact with it in your body? So then for Gina, around March, you had said, the vaccine didn't even exist. That would be a dream. And and obviously now fast forwarding, we have the vaccine. What was the general sentiment when word came out that there would be a vaccine eventually? And when did you hear of that on your end? Um, you know, I can't remember exactly when I was hearing about it. I mean, I heard, you know, I heard that not directly in the scientific community, but I know where to go. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm part of like, several nerdy uh, groups. And like one of my favorite was your neighborhood friendly virologist on Facebook. You guys know this group. And I joined that group pretty early on. And so I'm like, you know, reading all the stuff and the one of the ad, the key admin there, I think his name's Rico. I mean, he's dropping straight science. And I'm just like in English, I'm like in me, you know, I'm like nowhere near Francis here. Like my, I was like, trust me, I got through microbiology. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but that was the end of that story. And so, you know, but they start talking about mRNA vaccines when I think that, you know, there was kind of rumors that they were making a vaccine and that it was going to be an mRNA. And I want to say maybe this could have been May. Um, that I was kind of hearing that or reading that. And then, you know, people automatically, and what I liked about that group, because it was admin by doctors and scientists. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because, you know, we were at the peak of the Trump, just misinformation, just scattered everywhere. And it was just disgusting. And just to find a scientific community uh, was just like, it was so refreshing. It was like, oh my God, fellow nerds, nerds unite over here. Um, and so they were talking about that mRNA being used for vaccine was, that's not new research. It's actually been something that's been studied um, for many years. And, you know, people were already like, vaccines too fast. They're like, how, how, and, you know, they started kind of saying like, Trump is using it as a political tool. So he's like, we're going to have this vaccine by like the end of the summer. And I'm like, good luck. Um, and so people were already, the public were already like, no, that's, you know, we couldn't do that. They're going to poison us or, you know, kill us, whatever. And, you know, all these different theories were coming out. And the thing was, is that no, you know, like, okay, yes, there is a vaccine coming, but just know that they already have kind of a foundation to build off of here. Yes, COVID-19 is new, but guess what? It's not the first coronavirus. And I said, this one just has this funky little spike protein that just happens to say, yo, I can get through your crap and your defenses, but it's not the first one. So we have plenty of science already. And I was trying to explain that in a very simple form that, you know, the science is already there. I said, now it's just like, they just have to target this one special entity of this particular virus, not the entire virus itself. And granted, I'm overly simplifying it. I'm sure like, you know, Francis will definitely can go a lot deeper into this, but, you know, I was 
trying to explain it to like people on the streets, you know, or just fellow, even um, from the medical side, you know, being on rounds with the doctors, listening to what the infectious disease teams were talking about. This was right around the time where hydroxychloroquine was, you know, being used and people thought it was going to be this miracle medication. And we're like, oh, no, because we're not not seeing much effectiveness here. And people were like, um, I mean, literally patients were like demanding to have hydroxychloroquine at this same time. Like they did not want any other treatment. I want the, you know, what they said on TV, like, why won't you give it to me? And then, I mean, doctors were like breaking down. They're like, they are, they swear that we're trying to kill them because we won't give them this medication, but the medication is actually going to, what's going to kill them. And it was just like this whole big slew. But during that, during the vaccine talk, um, it was more so like people were completely adamantly, vehemently like against what was going to go, what was happening. I'm not taking that crap. And then you have people like me who were like, you need somebody for a clinical trial? <laughs> like, I don't want to get this. <laughs> Francis, do you have anything to add to this? Um, no, I mean, I think you did a really great job. I don't think it's oversimplified at all. I, I mean, the interesting thing is that, as Gina mentioned, you know, a lot of groups targeted the spike protein. So what happens is there's also, the, it's, it's this beautiful time for science too. The thing that I, I would like to add is that there are a lot of things that took a lot of change over time and took way more time. And as technologies evolved in the last 10 and 15 and 20 years, it really allowed us to do things at a faster rate than we've ever been able to do it. And that exists in, across all technologies, right? The fact that we're sitting in a video conference, the fact that people live during this pandemic in a way that would not have looked the same 10 years ago, let alone 15 years ago, it, that, that's the same thing. You know, our ability to connect, even though it's really painful, is way better today with the technologies we have than it was years ago. And so it was this kind of prime time where these technologies have been developed and worked on. It opened a time for it all to work together and to and to be built on each other. And that doesn't mean that there was tons of failure, which was you know, really interesting when you see, say like Merck's vaccine, it failed after its second clinical trial. And that makes a lot of sense. Like it wasn't, I was actually surprised that so many eggs went into the spike protein basket. You know, So um, as Gina explained, you have all these tools and at the very beginning, we're just like looking at the virus and you're thinking, well, what is the most logical thing to target? What is your cell really reacting to when you get infected? And let's like choose a couple that makes sense. Lots of people, about 95% of the scientists and the different companies chose the same thing, which was actually a little terrifying because if it failed, if that wasn't gonna work, it was gonna be really scary. And I was shocked at how well it, it worked. And it was, you know, been an amazing feat, I think, for collaboration and for manifestation. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll say about that. I can't imagine the the chaos and uncertainty that was looming on both the care management side with uh, Gina and then also on the science end with Francis. Um, when did that light at the end of the tunnel start appearing? When did things become a bit more organized on your end, Gina, you feel during this whole pandemic? I would say, honestly, right now, um, this last month, I would say, because we hit that surge, we just kind of came off the surge maybe mid-February, end of February, uh, March, maybe, okay, maybe second week of March, we really started seeing our COVID numbers decrease in my group. And it was kind of like, we still, I, now I'm kind of more relaxed and I see how many people are now accepting the vaccine. And it's it's now becoming, get your Fauci ouchie, 
um, and then people are taking pictures with their cards. And so now I feel like, okay, this is accepted. Like, okay, we're, we're on the right track. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just taking a breath of uh, just relief right now, but I'm seeing what's going on in Europe. And granted, the vaccine rollout, there's also issues there. They had issues, for example, in Germany, um, I read and I read an article where in Germany, because, you know, Pfizer's German, and the Germans wanted the German vaccine. And that was that. And they left the rest of the other, I think they had the AstraZeneca and they were like, I don't want that. They had like AstraZeneca going to waste because everyone was like, I will wait until I can get my Pfizer vaccine. That's that. And it's kind of going on the same here. People are, they've seen the news and they've put out the, you know, where the efficacy is. And now it's like people are like, oh, I want my, I want Pfizer um, and versus, you know, overall all of the rest. But even though Moderna is like being near right there with it. So it's just, it's kind of interesting. But I think right now we're kind of like a little bit relaxing. I know in the hospitals, they're starting to take back elective surgeries, for example, all of that quit. Like they stopped, like if you needed your hip replaced or something um, and it wasn't an emergency, you weren't getting it done because we needed every single bed. They were putting patients in the gift shop. They were putting patients in the pediatric unit, any, any unit that they had, any place they could put a bed, that's where they were putting it. And this is across the country. Um, they did have the refrigeration trucks full of bodies. And actually only a couple of weeks ago, one of the doctors told me they finally took it away from uh, one of the hospitals here in LA that he saw that the truck was finally gone. Um, so that's a good sign, but I'm cautiously optimistic because of what's going on in Europe. I don't want people to feel too secure right now because COVID's not done with us yet. Our vaccine rate is not high enough to consider herd immunity. And what I saw in places like Miami, I see everyone and their baby mama in Tulum right now. I don't know why Tulum is the hot spot, but it is. I'm just greatly concerned that we're going to come back and that they're, I'm, I'm really concerned about the variants. I do not need a, a vaccine resistant variant popping up. Um, and the more it gets exposed to us, the people, it's, it, it learns us. And that's what's fascinating. And I'm going to nerd out a little bit, but this virus learns us at the rate of a sci-fi movie. So um, if, you know, uh, if it learns us and keeps learning us, it will learn to build resistance to this vaccine too. And you, we cannot allow that to happen. So even as a vaccinated person, I am still very masked up. Um, I'm not really out doing a whole lot. I am still a, a certified house cat. I just, you know, I'm still, I'm just cautiously optimistic. We're not done with this yet. And I mean, even though I literally only have maybe one or two COVID patients in house and the county just released the numbers, there's only 400 in the entire county that are hospitalized, 471 as of today. I think that that's really great. Those are numbers I think are the lowest we've seen and since basically almost the beginning. But I am worried because if France shuts back down, France shut back down and we still haven't shut down air travel and people are getting a little bit more secure and, and thinking they could be okay without the mask, I'm like, is something else dark leering over us right now? And that's what I'm worried about. Francis, we would love for you to add your thoughts into this, please. Yeah, well, I would start by saying viruses and microbes, bacteria in general, are phenomenal, phenomenal organisms. They are smart and interesting, and they adapt so amazingly. They're so interesting from a perspective above. When they affect you know human life and things, it gets very complicated, but as an evolutionary tool, it is phenomenal. And, and as Gina says, they, they learn tremendously well. Um, and so we've seen that. 
play out and we'll continue to see it play out. Um, and I think that's a thing to, to pay attention to. And, and you know, it, it's additive. There's so many things going on. There is the way that we interact with each other, the way that we interact with our environment and the way that then the virus interacts with us. And so I, I think there's a lot of hope. It's been the same. It, this is the first time maybe at, uh, in the middle of March that I've felt a breath. So after kind of doing early R&D on molecules, uh, I quickly moved into diagnostics. So once that went up into the, the pipeline of the pharmaceutical companies to get developed and to, to make modifications and to be tested on different animal models and then, and then in the clinical trials and, and all the scale-up technologies that have to be done to think about actual production and stability, I quickly moved to work with uh, Curative in LA and then uh, Maitreon up here in Oakland to look at diagnostics. First, the just basic diagnostics that was originally rolled out and then looking at more fast, rapid technologies for that. And so in the diagnostic space, it was just overwhelming. It it oscillated with the constant surges. So you, your work and the need was really seen day to day, like on the doorstep. You could track the positivity rate from the community in different areas. You could see when things were shifting and changing and it became quite dynamic too, because as the movement of the virus changed through the population, our behaviors changed also, you know, there was, a desire to open back up. Schools started opening up in different ways, you know, first just letting teachers back on, doing different pods. We worked with a lot of schools to kind of develop testing protocols. And this is all limited by the amount of funds and the amount of resources schools have and the logistical hindrances that they they combat. So there's no silver bullet for any of this. And this was just a constantly changing dynamic problem that you had to reevaluate and look at and it's basically a constant cost-benefit risk analysis. And that, that's really hard when you're talking about people's health and people's lives, and particularly in a not equal way. So that was quite complicated and continues to be. But I do have hope with the rollout. The rollout here has been promising and we're vaccinating a lot of people and it seems particularly in California the numbers are are low so there's a lot to to learn still though in the next few months so we'll have to see if you're just tuning in you're listening to the people with David and fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles today we're spending time with Gina Harris and Francis Tran to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine there is a hesitation amongst black and brown communities, for instance, to get the vaccine. This question is for the both of you. Like, Can you talk about some of the hesitations surrounding that, why it exists, and some common myths we can help dispel to hopefully ease the tensions in people's minds about the COVID-19 vaccine? So, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, we cannot speak about anything new and experimental or anything without acknowledging the fact that medical experimentation took place on people of color, Black community from the very beginning, you know, when we were brought over here to, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and it, it was a brutalized thing. It wasn't something that, you know, it wasn't like clinical trials where you get cookies and free stuff to come take, you know, it was literally 
can this person feel pain? Um, you know, we have, let's inject syphilis into this person, for example, and see what happens um, and not tell them about it. Or, hey, this person has a really magical cell and we're going to take it, replicate it, use it for, you know, cancer studies and not tell them about it either. So, of course, anytime that you have a person, especially the government, um, coming and telling you something about a vaccine that has not been really pushed through the whole rigmarole of clinical trials, which I tell people like, look, a lot of medications and medical advancements, scientific advancements get slowed down, not because it you know, necessarily needs to, it's because of bureaucracy and government and funding, mainly funding. So this time we have the entire world working in concert with each other to race to find this vaccine. Now, granted, yes, I'm sure there was some you know, conversations about who was going to get it first to profit, but nonetheless, it was now the whole world is working together to get this vaccine. And so a lot of that red tape and a lot of those things that make the process 10, 15 years long was gone. So, you know, yes, you still had the clinical trial part, but clinical trials were starting up and running probably like, well, I don't know, maybe as early as April, if not earlier, I don't know. But so coming into the, like, like specifically to the Black community talking vaccine on the early days, it was, oh, hell no, I'm not getting that experimental stuff. And that was very much so understood. Like I could not argue with these people or any people who said that because of knowing the history. So I had to acknowledge the history and say, I totally get it. And then when the vaccine started rolling out and, you know, in the recent months, we started seeing people trying to skip the line. We saw people getting access to the codes that were specifically for communities of color, underrepresented communities. And they were coming from Beverly Hills and they were coming from more affluent areas of L.A. into South L.A., into East L.A. I think one clinic in Pasadena had to shut down because they realized over 800 and something of their uh, access codes were given to the wrong community. And so there you go. So I had to come back and just be very honest and very real with my people and be like, look, if I was like, do you think that if this was an experiment meant to control us, meant to exterminate us or anything that all these white people would be coming into South LA with their Bentleys? No, I literally doing vaccines. I vaccinated somebody in a damn Rolls Royce at the forum. So that lets me know that this is wanted by everyone. And if I have people coming from the Palisades to Inglewood to get this vaccine, then I know that it is not something that they're, they're trying to use um, specifically to target our communities. But it's still, it was still a hard sell. So I got the vaccine pretty early because A, I was starting to get vaccines and then you know doing a lot of the community work. Um, and so I got the vaccine early, not because I necessarily needed to, like I said, you know, I wasn't necessarily doing the frontline work every day. I did do, you know, I, like anytime someone asked for help, I would definitely offer it and be there, but I did it because my community needed to know they needed to see people that look like them get this vaccine so that they could know that it was safe. And I documented it. I said, Hey, you guys, like, here's my first Fauci ouchie. Um, and then, you know, I had a delayed, I had Moderna arm. I, I don't know if you guys heard about that very much, but I got the Moderna arm, a very delayed site reaction that happened about, I don't know, it was about nine or 10 days after I got my initial injection. Um, I, my arm turned red, it was warm. It got this really big, nice baseball size, like knot on it. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like, I mean, you know, I'm thinking it's a spider bike. So I was like, there's no way that I would get, this would be a site reaction because it's so long after. And I thought it was a spider, but I was like, oh, no, if it was a spider that damn big, it was a tarantula and I would have known about it. You know, I looked it up and I, I didn't even go to the CDC. I'll be honest. I feel like the CDC had to kind of separate it from the Trump administration a little bit. So I was like, I just went to the WHO. 
Um, I went to the WHO to see what they were saying about this, this delayed site reaction. I reported it to the CDC because they need this data. This data is so pertinent right now. And Francis is like, yes, data. Um, but it's so pertinent. Um, and so I want to report this because in the Black community, we do not participate in clinical trials. Why? Because of the past history. So I wanted the data to be reported that I'm having this reaction. I took a Benadryl, it went away. Boom, done. Second shot, okay, second shot was a little bit of a doozy. Um, you know, that immune response was some, it was a doozy, but I was hyping myself up with my 101 fever. Like, yes, antibodies, come on, let's do it. And I was a cranky ass person. Like I was on rounds with my doctors, like I whining and complaining. I was, yeah, I was cranky, but I didn't hide that. I wanted people to know what the difference between immune response and actual side effects. I'm having an immune response. I, my body's achy, I'm in bed, my fever's 101 and I can't even have my cat bring me water, but it is okay because the very next day I was cool. And so it was just like, I wanted that because that is what, you know, is needed in the community. But now I think I think now everything is basically kind of starting to smooth out. My entire family um, that I know of that has been eligible has gotten vaccinated. A lot of people in the Black community are racing to get vaccinated now. And if they don't, I'm kind of more so like I understand, but you know, please wear your mask, please do these things, you know, please stay protected. Because like I said, COVID's not done with us yet. Um, it's just that we're we're fighting back now. We have the tools. Francis, would you be able to help explain the differences between the immune responses and side effects with each of the different vaccines? I know that I had received the Pfizer one and my first shot hurt a lot more than my second, although for a majority it's the, the opposite. So how do, how do all the side effects and immune responses um, come into play with each of these different vaccines? Yeah, so I, I first wanna just acknowledge what you know saying as far as, you know, trying to think about safety and the concerns of communities is that they're all completely valid and, and to, to repair the distrust and the fear of the healthcare system will take generations. And we definitely haven't fixed it now. And the pandemic has really shown and continued to indict our healthcare system. So it is not been great. And so the fears by communities of color and the black community and indigenous populations are completely valid. And I don't know how to, to solve that immediately for the current state that we're in, but it's, it's, it's a process. And so thank you so much for being part of that process. It's, it's such work that needs to be done. Um, and I would talk about kind of the, the safety of the vaccine too. I mean, the, the biggest fear about the vaccine, particularly the mRNA vaccines, is um, not the safety, but whether they would work because they degrade so quickly, the stabilization of them is actually the thing that's spent, we've spent years trying to figure out. And so when we think about then side effects and the immune response, and so immune systems are massively complex. I moonlight as many things, as a microbiologist, as a molecular biologist, biochemist, chemist, synthetic biologist, but an immunologist is one that I, cannot and probably would never be able to do. It's it's a field that is constantly changing and confusing to those who identify as immunologists. So it is a fascinating, fascinating system in our bodies. Um, and we've seen that play out in COVID. You know, you see young people have a particular type of immune response and they don't get sick in the same way that older people do. And we're talking young, we're talking about people in their teens and, and early 20s, but really even younger than that. 
Um, and, but then they don't produce antibodies. And that's been a really fascinating learning for us uh, for this particular virus. And, you know, and, and so does that mean that they'll continue to fight it? We don't know, but we imagine it will. You know, we're thinking about the different immune responses from the, your T cell response, which just reacts very quickly. And young people have very fast T cell responses that don't make antibodies to your antibody response, your B cells. And so when you get the vaccine, the, all the side effects are kind of things that you might get from just anything that irritates you. You know, food that's a little irritating that leads to something in your stomach that doesn't feel well to something else that might not process well. And then that can happen, you know, when someone pokes you with something or when someone just injects something that is not from your body. And so that's common. Just the pain in the muscle is, is likely a side effect because you're jabbing a muscle, uh, the irritation, the redness, all of that. It's just kind of like a little wound. So that's, you know, that, that something went in there and, and your body's just trying to heal that process. And then the actual immune response is when your body recognizes this foreign invader that's actually in there and it's trying to fight that off. And in order to fight that off, it's, it's doing what we're hoping it will do is to make antibodies so that it can target the invader and it can recognize it later when it comes. So when your immune system hypes up, it actually warms your body because that's one of the ways. You know, commonly when you get sick, people take things to get rid of fevers. I would suggest a little plug to not do that right away because your fever is actually fighting this infection. Um, and so that's, you know, what's happening with your immune response. You have a fever, your body is producing all these um, antibodies. So you get really achy. Your muscles are making all of these little antibodies to fight things. And so it's working at this, this rate, just like you were to, if you were to do push-ups or pull-ups. So you're sore and you're tired. Your body's working super hard. And that's why the second dose is usually a doozy because the first time, and the reason why the mRNA vaccines also often need two doses is because it degrades really quickly. So the response from the first one isn't long lasting enough to produce enough antibodies that you would want to have around for longevity. So you get a small response and you're getting a reaction. But the second time your body's ready, it's primed, it knows what to do and it's like on high alert. And so you just get floored and you just gotta let it go. You know, let your body do its work, let it work itself out. It's like your muscles. Like I said, when you're doing push-ups and pull-ups, it's like your body healing itself. Wow. I mean, I will say that I got the J&J vaccine and was knocked on my behind within the first three hours. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a doozy. I do want to talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So earlier this week, the LA Times reported that um, J&J halted distribution in LA because six women between the ages of 18 and 48 got blood clots as a side effect of this vaccine. Um, can you speak to how this impacts vaccine distribution moving forward? Um, sure. Uh, well, I mean, I can I can speak to it. I mean, I know uh, Francis has definitely the science behind it. But I do know from what I know from, you know, my slight nerding it out. Um, and I'll just put that out there. My nerding out is like a little bit above and almost obsessive than what you would probably find with a lot of most, like most nurses. So don't expect, like, don't let this be the standard for like, you just think any nurse will have this level. Cause I'd like extra nerd out on this stuff. So I just, <laughs> I have to protect my fellow nurses here because I don't want them to be like, what the hell, why are they asking me these questions? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, so I have to protect them and just put that out there. Um, so, you know, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is not an MRNA vaccine. They are, it's one of the spike protein vaccines. 
And so that's why it's a little different. Um, but six women getting the blood clot out of, I think they've given 2.8 million doses. I think that was the number they did, 2.8 million. So only six were experiencing this issue with blood clotting. And they're not 100% sure that it is directly related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Like, I don't think it's the same lot numbers. I don't think it's anything. It's really hard, but it's just like, it's out of precaution because we know what's going on in Europe with the AstraZeneca. They've stopped the AstraZeneca too for a very similar reaction. And like uh, Francis said, immunology is just extreme nerdiness. Like, I mean, those, the, you got to be a nerd of a nerd to really do that because how bodies respond to different things are different. Like I developed an allergy to peaches at 17 years old. I grew up eating peaches. Why am I allergic now? I do not know. But, you know, it's just, why is my body acting crazy all of a sudden? Um, people develop, you know, immune responses late in life. We just don't know what's going on. Is it to the vaccine? Is it because they ate a peach? Who knows? Um, but for now, it's better to be safe. Is it going to hurt, you know, getting people vaccinated? Yes, because they have a lot of it ready to go. Moderna and Pfizer, they're pumping it out too, but the demand is just so high. And, and that's good. I'm glad the demand is high. I would rather the demand be high than us be wasting doses right now. I will say that, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, Johnson & Johnson was just sued for a gazillion dollars over that talc, talcum powder incident. And so in the Black community, where we heavily, where women, I mean, it was just kind of a thing, your aunties, your grandmas, your, your, we all use powder. And so um, that Johnson & Johnson vaccine had an extra layer of caution because, and then it was being used heavily in communities of color, low-income communities. They were saying that they wanted to use the homeless for homeless because it was like one dose, one dose you're done. So that'd be good for like the homeless population because if you get them what you don't have to worry about chasing, finding them again for the uh, second dose. So that was kind of like the Johnson & Johnson scenario. I've been telling people like, hey, regardless, if you have access to a vaccine, you get it point blank and period. You get it. But I think that right now it's a, a overly abundant caution, which I understand. There's just no trust right now and I get it. So I, I, I get it, but I just really um, think that, yes, we might see some delays. We might see some vaccine clinics not be able to give those vaccines right now if they're depending on the Johnson & Johnson, but hopefully it will only be very, very temporary and it'll be back to business here very soon. And Francis, anything to add before we close out? Yeah, I mean, I would just say um, what Jean's saying is that it is a complete abundance of caution and, and we don't have all the information. It, it might be possible that a slew more people will get blood clots, but the numbers that we have now are are, are low and, and really what you would expect from the general population. So there's massive amounts of data and they're pulling all the data. And when anything small happens, they put a pause on it, which is actually a really interesting thing to think about. They did it with AstraZeneca and now they're doing it with Johnson & Johnson. When you think about kind of a lot of fears that the community has is that, you know, then there's the other side of the polarity is that there's actually a lot of caution on both the regulatory side and on the pharmaceutical side because they don't want to push anything that might lead to something that they'll have to pull back in the future. So they're moving step by step. And so this is the best way they can do it. And I would also say that all three vaccines look amazing. And I know that the numbers of efficacy are the ones that everyone kind of talks about. But when you extrapolate the data, you're talking about clinical trials that ran at different times and at different rates of infection in the population. And when you look at them and even them out, normalize them, the Johnson, Johnson one is, is really amazing. It's quite impressive when I was looking at the data a few weeks ago. So I would just say in the same way, they're all really impressive and do an amazing job. And the Johnson Johnson is a little bit different in that it is an adenovirus vaccine, which is just 
to say that the way that it's administered is a little bit different, but it's actually a more traditional style. So it's, it's a type of vector or form in which we've used in the past to deliver vaccines. And so they went the more traditional route, the more used route, um, and that's what they've been using. So we know a lot about those type of vaccines. Okay. And also, very quickly, earlier in the conversation, Francis, you mentioned that there are so many learnings that you've taken away moving forward, too. Can you speak to some of those learnings and what this looks like for vaccine development in the future? Yeah, I guess the the bigger thing I have thought a lot about is kind of how we engage and work together um, in the scientific community and in the community at large and how information has uh, been both a wonderful tool and kind of a hindrance. And so that's to say that our process of learning about what we know about the virus, you know, if you think about the beginning, we didn't touch anything. No one knew if you could pick it up from a surface. No one knew how quickly it was mutating and how easily it was to infect you and, and how stable it was. But then quickly we learned, you know, we, we performed some studies and realized the likelihood of getting infected from a surface is nearly zero. We haven't seen any instance of that. And so that's not a big problem. But how to work with the community to kind of allow for our learning and our process and the communities uh, seems really tricky. And so I think going forward, it would be a really, hopefully a new way for us to work together. You know, poor Fauci has all these moments where he, I think, is a great scientist and is really open to admitting when he's wrong. You know, when he said, hey, we didn't know that much about masks. We also were worried about these other things. And we said no masks. Now we're telling you to wear masks. Can you please just maybe give us a little credit and have a little patience and work together? And, and kind of working through those processes, I think, um, is, is what I'm hoping the future will allow us to kind of grow through. And more importantly, for those who are who are very hesitant to get the vaccine, how can we support people moving forward and how can we speak to someone who feels hesitant about getting the vaccine? Um, I think that it's mainly education. Um, you know, it's hearing those fears, hearing those apprehensions, you know, I mean, I made a joke about it. I was like, look, I've gotten the vaccines. I haven't turned in the storm yet. I think she's one of the coolest X-Men. I love her and Jean Grey, and I got neither one of their powers. I, I think that it's just really dispelling the misinformation. And that's one of the things I learned with the power of misinformation and how vulnerable people are to misinformation. And the reason why politics does has no, I mean, granted, yes, politics is needs to be involved in science, or we might have, you know, Lex Luthor running around somewhere. But at the same time, politics has no right to really tell you, you know, over, to go over science. If you have a scientist telling you this, let, maybe let's defer to the scientists. Um, and so I think that's what I learned the biggest, the most was about, about how dangerous misinformation is, how dangerous the school of YouTube is and the Facebook school of medicine is. Um, you know, those are very dangerous entities. So I would tell people to, A, you know, check facts be factual, go to a source. I don't mind being a source. I told people, contact me, text me, Facebook me, anything, because I knew that at least I could get some information or know where to get it. That's right. Not like I said. And so I think if we get past the misinformation and get people to be comfortable and hear what their concerns are and try to answer those questions, I think that would get it. And then also like for me, having to show, I have to, show, I have to prove it. I have to put the proof in the pudding. And because of that, people actually told me that they got the vaccine because they saw me get it they felt more comfortable. So, I mean, honestly, put your money where your mouth is. If I'm going to say, tell you to get it, I'm getting it too. Yeah, I would echo all that. You know, trying to meet people where they are, everyone is entering from the information that they have and the fears that are founded in 
the experiences that they have and, and that's all very valid. And so just trying to understand where that's all coming from and what are the things that can help alleviate and um, help solve some of these uh, issues that people might have. And in time, you know, it takes time to understand. It takes time to learn and to feel comfortable. And so I think that um, that's all valid. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Gina Harris, Francis Tran, we are out of time with you. And once again, thank you so much for joining us on The People with David and Fam. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We just finished a really awesome conversation with Gina Harris and Francis Tran. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So David, what are you grateful for? (laughs) I am grateful that we have such smart, passionate people telling us what we got hit with in terms of the vaccine shots. Um, And I'm grateful for their work uh, that they've done for the larger community. Um, I'm thankful. How about you, Christina? What are you thankful for? I'm grateful for the fact that there are people who make science really cool. If I had teachers like Gina or (laughs) Francis when I was younger, I would have thought science was so dope, man the way they would break it down and adding so much flair and making it seem cool and accessible. I'm grateful for things like that. But I also have nieces and know that they're super jazzed about science because they have teachers like that. Once again, thank you, Gina Harris and Francis Tran for joining us on The People with David and Fam. And you can hang out with us every Saturday at 10 a.m. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at the people underscore LA. That's at the people underscore LA. We're active on social media. So hit up our DMs and let us know what you thought about this week's episode and tell us what issues, what guests, what community events you want to hear about next week, because we want to learn what's important to you. The People with David and Fam is hosted by David Kim and me, Christina Diem Fam. We produce the show alongside Nathan Mosto. The show is written by myself, Nathan, and Ari Mosto. Our sound editors are Jeff McAllister and Nasser Malik. Jeff also composes our music. And of course, this show wouldn't be possible without the team over at KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on your voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And ultimately, we're here to empower and arm y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. Talk to y'all next week.